Thank you for tuning in to the Global Novel. I'm Claire Hennessy. On my hand is the new annotated edition of Ovid's Metamorphoses by Indiana University Press. The cover uses the famous painting of Narcissus by the Italian Baroque master Caravaggio, painted around 1597 to 99. In this painting, Narcissus is hung upon his own reflection in the river, a reflection that appears to him as an older, more masculine, charismatic man with observable wrinkles and even a beard, signifying his maturity. The painting therefore hints at an intriguing array of psychological concepts such as narcissism, fetish, scopophilia, and homoeroticism, revealing profound implications over one's sexuality and the sense of self and desire. Today, we're going to explore how these concepts are represented in some of its stories. Metamorphoses was written in the eighth A.D. in Latin dactylic hexameter, and it chronicles the history of the world from its creation to the deification of Julius Caesar, within a loose mythical historical framework. Although meeting the criteria for an epic, the poem defies simple genre classification by its use of varying themes and tones. Ovid took inspiration from the genre of metamorphosis poetry, and some of the metamorphoses derived from earlier treatment of the same myths. However, he also diverged significantly from all of his models. A writing epic, rather than Homer's speaking epic, metamorphosis is usually used to create a coherent network of themes and motifs, with the mythological being on the surface level. It significantly influenced writers such as Chaucer, Dante, and Shakespeare, creating a set of archetypes for later generations. Ovid worked his way through his subject matter, often in an apparent arbitrary fashion, by jumping from one transformation tale to another, sometimes retelling what had to come to be seen as central events in the world of Greek mythology, and sometimes straying in odd directions. It begins with a ritual invocation of the muse and makes use of the traditional epithets and circumlocutions. But instead of following and extolling the deeds of a human hero, it leaps from story to story with little connection. The recurring theme, however, as with nearly all of his work, is about love, be it personal love or love personified in the figure of Cupid. What is subversive about the work is that the other Roman gods are repeatedly perplexed, humiliated, and made ridiculous by Cupid, an otherwise relatively minor god of the pantheon, who is the closest thing his putative mock epic has to a hero. Apollo comes in for particular ridicule as Ovid shows how irrational love can confound the god out of reason. The entire work inverts the accepted order. Elevating humans and human passions while making the gods and their desires and conquests the objects of low humor. The different genres and divisions in the narrative allow the metamorphosis to display a wide range of themes. Scholar Steve M. Wheeler notes that metamorphosis, mutability, love, violence, artistry, and power are just some of the unifying themes that critics have proposed over the years. Why does Ovid use the technique of metamorphosis or transformation to represent the nature of love and erotic desire? 
Ovid raises its significance explicitly in the opening lines of the poem. In nova fertanimus mutatas dicele formas, which in English means "I intend to speak of forms changed into new entities." Accompanying this theme is often violence inflicted upon a victim, whose transformation becomes part of the natural landscape. This theme amalgamates the much explored opposition between the hunter and the hunted, and the thematic tension between art and nature. There is a great variety among the types of transformation that take place, from human to inanimate objects, constellation, animal, from animal to fungus, to human of sex and of color. The metamorphoses themselves are often located metatextually within the poem through grammatical or narratorial transformations, and other times transformations are developed into humor or even absurdity, such that slowly the reader realizes he's being had. Or the very nature of transformation is questioned or subverted. This phenomenon is merely one aspect of Ovid's extensive use of illusion and disguise. What kind of personality would the poet be who professed in writing about love? If using any word to describe Ovid, it would be the specialist of love. The most enigmatic nature about *Metamorphoses* is through its storytelling, in which Ovid presumably revealed something that he should not, and thus was exiled by King Augustus. It is generally assumed by scholars that Ovid was once visiting Augustus and possibly saw something taboo. What did he see about Augustus? Till this day, it remains a mystery. The only clue we have at hand is that the women of Augustus' household were something of a scandal, so much so that one of them, especially his daughter Julia, had to be banished. So it might as well just to banish the rascal who wrote it all about erotic loves and was the cause of it all. The official reason was probably not the real one. In fact, Ovid says that his fault was a mistake. Not a crime, as if there had been some particular incident he had seen something or known something rather than written too much. At any rate, the poet was sentenced to a miserable town named Tomi on Black Sea, nowadays known as Romania, and left there rotten and perished. Nevertheless, Ovid wrote his poem of arrows by collecting myths and by inventing stories, with each one having a power to transform a person from one species to another, and the work became an instant success. What follows is the story of Apollo and Daphne, and we will discuss how sexual pursuit is represented in this story. Apollo and Daphne. Now, the first girl Apollo loved was Daphne. Whose father was the river god Peneus, and this was no blind chance, but Cupid's malice. Apollo, with pride and glory still upon him over the python slain, saw Cupid bending his tight-strung little bow. "Oh, silly youngster," he said, "what are you doing with such weapons? Those are for grown-ups. The bow is for my shoulders. I never fail in wounding beast or mortal." And not so long ago, I slew the python with countless darts. His bloaty body covered acre on endless acre, and I slew him. The torch, my boy, is enough for you to play with, to get the love fires burning. Do not meddle with honors that are mine. And Cupid answered, "Your bow shoots everything, Apollo. Maybe, but mine will fix you. You are far above all creatures living, 
and by just that distance, your glory less than mine. He shook his wings, soared high, came down to the shadows of Parnassus, drew from his quiver different kinds of arrows, one causing love, golden and sharp and gleaming, the other blunt and tipped with lead and serving to drive all love away. But this blunt arrow he used on Daphne, but he fired the other, the sharp and golden shaft, piercing Apollo through bone, through marrow. And at once he loved, and she at once fled from the name of lover. Rejoicing in the woodland hiding places and spoils of beasts which she had taken captive, arrival of Diana, virgin goddess, she had many suitors, but she scorned them all. Wanting no part of any man, she traveled the pathless groves, and had no care whatever for husband, love, or marriage. Her father often said, Daughter, give me a son-in-law, and daughter, give me some grandsons. But the marriage torches were something hateful, criminal to Daphne. She would blush and put her arms around him and coax him, Let me be a virgin always. Diana's father said she might. Dear father, please. He yielded, but her beauty kept arguing against her prayer. Apollo loves at first sight. He wants to marry Daphne. He hopes for what he wants, all wishful thinking, is fooled by his own oracles. As stubble burns when the grain is harvested, as hedges catch fire from torches that a passerby has brought too near or left behind in the morning, so the god burned with all his heart, and burning nourished that futile love of his by hoping. He sees the long hair hanging down her neck, uncared for, says, But what if it were combed? He gazes at her eyes. They shine like stars. He gazes at her lips and knows that gazing is not enough. He marvels at her fingers, her hands, her wrists, her arms, bare to the shoulder. And what he does not see, he thinks is better. But still she flees him, swifter than the wind. And when he calls, she does not even listen. Don't run away, dear nymph, daughter of Peneus. Don't run away. I am no enemy. Only your follower. Don't run away. The lamb flees from the wolf, the deer, the lion. The dove, untrembling wing, flees from the eagle. All creatures flee their foes. But I, who follow, am not a foe at all. Love makes me follow, unhappy fellow that I am. And fearful, you may fall down, perhaps, or have the briars make scratches on those lovely legs, unworthy to be hurt so, and I would be the reason. The ground is rough here. Run a little slower, and I will run, I promise, a little slower. Or wait a minute, be a little curious, just who it is you charm. I am no shepherd, no mountain dweller. I am not a plowboy, uncouth and stinking of cattle, you foolish girl. You don't know who it is you run away from. That must be why you run. I am Lord of Delphi and Tenedos and Kleros and Patara. Jove is my father, and I am the revealer of present, past, and future. Through my power, the lyre and song make harmony. My arrow is sure in aim. There's only one arrow sure, the one that wounds my heart. The power of healing is my discovery. I am called the healer through all the world. All herbs are subject to me. Alas for me, love is incurable with any herb. The arts which cure the others do me, their lord, no good. He would have said much more than this, but Daphne, frightened, left him with many words and said, And she was lovely even in flight. 
her limbs bare in the wind, her garments fluttering, and her soft hair streaming more beautiful than ever. But Apollo, too young a god to waste his time in coaxing, came following fast. When a hound starts a rabbit in an open field, one runs for game, one safety. He has her, or he thinks he has, and she is doubtful whether she's caught or not, so close the margin. So ran the god and girl, one swift in hope, the other in terror, but he ran more swiftly, born on the wings of love, gave her no rest. Shadowed her shoulder, breathed on her streaming hair, her strength was gone, worn out by the long effort of the long flight. She was deathly pale, and seeing the river of her father, cried, Oh, help me, if there is any power in the rivers, change and destroy the body which has given too much delight. And hardly had she finished, when her limbs grew numb and heavy, her soft breasts were closed with delicate bark, and her hair was leaves. Her arms were branches, and her speedy feet rooted and held, and her head became a treetop. Everything gone except her grace, her shining. Apollo loved her still. He placed his hand where he had hoped and felt the heart still beating under the bark, and he embraced the branches as if they still were limbs, and kissed the wood. And the wood shrank from his kisses, and the god exclaimed, Since you can never be my bride, my tree at least you shall be. Let the laurel adorn henceforth my hair, my lyre, my quiver. Let Roman victors in the long procession wear laurel wreaths for triumph and ovation. Beside Augustus's portals, let the laurel guard and watch over the oak. And as my head is always youthful, let the laurel always be green and shining. He said no more. The laurel, stirring, seemed to consent to be saying yes. Apollo and Daphne is a story about scopophilia. Scopo means seeing, and philia means love with obsession. Therefore, scopophilia can be taken as voyeurism or fetish over fragmented parts of the body, parts that arouse sexual interest. In the story, Ovid writes that. Apollo loves her at first sight and desires to wet her. He sees her hair that flows across her neck, sees her eyes flash like stars, sees her mouth, which merely to see is hardly enough. He praises her fingers, her hands, her arms, which for the most part are bare, and what is hidden he imagines much better. This passage provides a very detailed description and explanation of scopophilia. Apollo's fetish over the tree bark and leaves that Daphne was transformed into further reinforces such a pleasure produced through visual image of the body parts. It is in this way that metamorphosis became a pornography for Augustus. Ovid's goal here is for sure to bring pleasure to his reader, and metamorphosis is as much about erotic mimesis as it is about sexual and emotional love. But for King Augustus, this seems to be casting a calumny against his own indulgement in sexual affairs. According to Suetonius, who wrote a biography on Augustus, he revealed the king's engagement with same-sex pleasure and allegations over deflowering virgins with his wife involved. There are many aspects to the definition of love. First and foremost, love is an aggression. As is described in Apollo's chasing Daphne in a predator and prey relationship, and then love can be ignited by what one sees and further seduced by what one cannot see. And Ovid seems to hint at the nature of love, which is 
Ultimately, the hidden desire behind what Apollo does not see in Daphne's hidden part of the body. This theorization on the essence of love and desire is also artfully represented in the death of Narcissus. The full name of the story is called Echo and Narcissus. It is said that Echo had already been a known myth figure when Ovid created the story. Therefore, Narcissus was completely Ovid's invention. The myth of the goddess is told in Book Three of the Metamorphoses and tells the story of a talkative nymph whom the goddess Venus admires for her magnificent voice and song. When she tricks Juno into believing that her husband Jupiter was in the city, Juno curses Echo by making her able to only finish a sentence not started and unable to say anything on her own. This is the explanation of the oral effect, which was named after her. Sometimes after being cursed, Echo spied a young man, Narcissus, while he was out hunting deer with his companions. She immediately fell in love with him and, infatuated, stalked him quietly. The more she looked at the young man, the more she longed for him. Though she wished with all her heart to call out to Narcissus, Juno's curse prevented her. During the hunt, Narcissus became separated from his companions and called out, "Is anyone there?" and heard the nymph repeated his words. Startled, Narcissus answered the voice, "Come here," only to be told the same. When Narcissus saw that nobody had emerged from the glade, he concluded that the owner of the voice must be running away from him, and called out again. Finally, he shouted, "This way, we must come together." Taking this to be a reciprocation of her love, Echo concurred ecstatically, "We must come together." In her delight, Echo rushed into Narcissus, ready to throw her arms around her beloved. Narcissus, however, was appalled and, spurning her, exclaimed, "Hands off! Might die before you enjoy my body!" All Echo could whisper in reply was, "Enjoy my body!" And having done so, she fled, scorned, humiliated, and shamed. Despite the harshness of his rejection, Echo's love of Narcissus only grew. When Narcissus died, wasting away before his own reflection, consumed by a love that could not be had, Echo mourned over his body. When Narcissus, looking one last time into the pool, uttered, "Oh, marvelous boy, I loved you in vain. Farewell." Echo too chorused, "Farewell." Eventually, Echo too began to waste away. Her beauty faded, her skin shriveled, and her bones turned to stone. Today, all that remains of Echo is the sound of her voice. In this story, first of all, in defining what is love, Ovid applies a writing technique called gender reversal. Rewriting Narcissus when he's gazing at his own reflection, a rather demasculine version of himself is appeared, and we will see a similar trope in the story of Cupid and Psyche. And all of those descriptions about Narcissus' fair skin and beauty constitute a rather graphic rendering of a good female body. Second, the meaning that lies behind Narcissus' infatuation with himself is, on the one hand, that one is not seeing who he is, because it is only a wishful image of oneself, and that is also an ideal image of the self. On the other hand, one is actually not really falling in love with what and whom one sees, but his own desire that is hidden behind these visual pleasures. What one really falls in love is a bodiless fantasy. 
But can we trace this desire? What is it, after all, that we fall in love? While it is too early to talk about Lacan's theory of the untraceable origin of desire, we do find in Echo's inability to express her desire for Narcissus, which is manifest in Echo's miscommunication in her erotic relationship. Therefore, love is also hindered by the misunderstanding of insufficient words and the very limitation of language itself. It is in this way that both characters die because of their respective unrequited desire. In fact. Reading is a process of identification with a certain character. Therefore, reading can be considered as an act itself, providing a kind of narcissist pleasure. You've been listening to the Global Novel, a podcast that surveys the narratology and translation of world literatures from antiquity to modernity through a critical lens, and aims to make academic education in literature accessible to the world. If you like this episode, you can show your support via theglobalnovel.com/donate, so we can keep making academic education available to more and more listeners around the world. Thank you so much for listening.